Thanks for tuning in today. Our session this week is with one of my good friends and mentors from way back in the IBM days, Mr. Bruce Kopkin. And we had our conversation uh, early on in 2020, and we had uh, a wide-ranging conversation on the tactical, practical steps of sales management in a world-class sales organization. So if management is your game and taking care of your people is your aim, Stay tuned for an excellent edition of the Sales Synergistics Podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm glad that you all could join us once again for another episode of the Sales Synergistic Podcast. And I'm very grateful to be joined again by one of my dear friends over many years, a veteran of IBM and uh, some other organizations, Mr. Bruce Kopkin. How are you doing, Bruce? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jason? Uh, doing fantastic. If I was doing any better, I think I'd have to take something for it. <laughs> Need to find a way to bottle that and sell it. Yeah, we gotta try it. We gotta try it. It'd be right next to the BS, right? <laughs> um, that being said, you know I, we know each other pretty well, and uh, we had a good time getting ready for this call. But uh, I don't think most of the audience would would know us. We're not uh, both published and and well uh, well distributed. Let's go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about what you do and uh, some of your background, how you got to this point in your career. Oh uh, yeah, sure. I'll try to keep it short. But I've been about a 40-year veteran here in the sales world, started off with an engineering degree somehow from uh, Georgia Tech, but got immediately into sales. I love sales because it's a chance to learn many different things, a lot of different industries, travel, meet meet new people, and ultimately find ways of uh, problem solving, which again, uses a little bit of my engineering background, but solving the problems of my customers that, you know, ultimately allows me to you know, to sell whatever solution is that I'm that I'm working for at the time. Um, right now, I'm working for um, DVI, Data Visualization Intelligence, a company that specializes in the data science to collect uh, travel information from our customers that allows them to put intelligence around it and spend their travel money more wisely. So a very exciting space right now and a great application for big data. Excellent, excellent. And you made an interesting point there. You said, uh, you don't know how you wound up in engineering, but maybe you've seen this too. Some of the best sales professionals out there come from an engineering background. They just seem to come from a space where they were working in that analytical problem solving space. Have you seen that yourself? No, absolutely. Uh, People think that um, uh, the best sales guys are the ones that can spew the most BS, but, and maybe that worked, you know, back in the day, but these days, you know, people are spending their money wisely. They're uh, really uh, doing their deliberations and their due diligence before they make a purchase. And really what they're wanting to find out is, you know, is this going to solve my problem and give me a you know, greater return than the investment I have to make in the solution? And that really is a an engineering problem. You know, what is the root cause? What's the cure for it? And what's the, you know, the future state? And I think it, it marries quite well to the sales world today. Amen. Amen. Well, without a degree, I'm partial to that myself, trained in engineering quite a bit. And I I loved the idea of engineering 
uh, solutions for your customers like you referenced there. So let's go a little bit deeper in your background. Um, tell us about some of the roles that you've had in the past and some of the companies that you might have worked for. Well, I started right right out of school. My first job was working for Reliance Electric as a sales in- engineer, selling motors and gears and pulleys to any manufacturing company that needed them. I, mm. I got in my company car, drove around looking for smokestacks and following trucks and going out there and you know trying to sell those things. Uh, great way to get going. Um, I guess you know learning that rejection is a part of sales probably. That job probably got 20 no's for every yes. Um, but then from there, ended up getting into a few more, um, I'd call them more sales-oriented jobs. Um, after that, I went to work for a company, MeasureX, out of Silicon Valley, one of the first companies using um, you know microprocessors and mini computers and those things for process control and going in there and, and optimizing the manufacturing process of, of you know different types of companies, paper, plastic, steel, et cetera, that... Uh, or making continuous processes. Um, from there, I ended up working for a number of different, uh, I really call them enterprise software companies from IBM that you mentioned before, uh, JDA software, um, you know, those sort of things. Um, and actually going out there and, you know, utilizing the new technologies that are out there, educating our prospects uh, and letting them know that there are new ways of of uh, addressing problems they see and, you know, as I said before, addressing those root cause of the problems with new technologies to fix them. Um, one of the neat things about software, boy, it's, it's ever evolving. The, the speed of innovation is so much quicker than it is around than capital equipment. Um, mm-hmm. You're coming out with new versions of your solution in some cases every week, but, you know, mm-hmm. you know, versus, you know, you make capital equipment, it may be two, three, four, five years before new products come out. It's a very dynamic, right. exciting place to be. Fantastic. And I, in terms of your background, I guess where we met, I was a relatively new seller and you were in a management role when we were both together at IBM. I like to say that we're both IBM survivors, right? <laughs> There's um, life after IBM. Absolutely. And to those who are listening that don't get that inside joke, there's nothing against IBM, but no, in such no. a big place, huge organization. We really had to find our way, didn't we? It really required a lot of, uh, you know, self, uh, self sacrifice, uh, self sacrifice, or self rescue in order to to get yourself out of some tough spots and places. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, as a company that obviously very successful over a hundred years and changing dynamics and all those things, but when it gets that big, it's almost like you've got this mixture of, in some cases, you're, you know, you're put into silos that are hard to 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 get out of, but another in other ways you look at it, you know, it's, it's, there are no silos. So every day you're fighting a different problem of, you know, am I, am I allowed to do this? Can I do this? What do my customers need? And then the next thing is how am I actually going to go ahead and execute? So it was really a, a great place to learn. It was, I, I felt the same way. And that training program was amazing to get our technical competence up. But um, one of the things that people have to learn the hard way is where I met you. You weren't just saving yourself. You had to, work with the team and you're responsible for the people under you. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about those leadership roles you had there at IBM? Yeah, I mean, at IBM, when I first came on board, I was on the the smarter commerce side doing, I'll just call it sort of typical sales management. You know, I had a team of, um, I think at the end, a team of about 24 with a couple of sales leads underneath me, um, you know, going out there and managing the opportunities, you know, helping them out, removing obstacles, managing the forecast and those pieces. 
Um, the one that I actually at IBM enjoyed even more, though, was I moved from there into the renewals part of the business. And, you know, for those people that are in the software world, um, you probably know that um, the, the software renewals is, is, is a gigantic part of the business. And if actually you're doing a good job of selling your solutions and, you know, keeping your customers and minimizing attrition, your recurring revenue can be greater than your new software business. And at IBM, that there was about $5 billion of recurring revenue that uh, we were all responsible for, you know, for, um, uh, for renewing and keeping customers uh, happy and wanting to renew their business. Um, had a team of uh, you know, a few dozen people and going after that. And the part that was so exciting, originally that was sort of viewed as an administrative task of renewing mm -hmm. customers and getting them to, um, you know, just pay the, you know, pay the invoice as a little bit of an increase, but just pay the invoice. And mm -hmm. my big uh, joy was actually uh, really transforming the team into, into sellers that looked at what the customers were using the software for, what benefits were they were getting, maybe what benefits they were missing, um, and actually helping them get more value out of a product that they maybe bought one, two, three, five, ten years ago. And what a benefit can we bring? And by doing that, we um, ended up having the lowest attrition of any business group for IBM in the world. Um, and, um, you know, it was really great and made a lot of money in commissions for the sales team that, that learned how to, you know, go with the business a little bit in a different way. I, I just got to put a feather in your cap there. When you say number one in the world inside of IBM, don't forget, world, that that's at that time 600,000 people. So that's quite an accomplishment. Um, well, well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, a lot of fun. I, I got to say, as I watched that role, uh, I was not um, a first line manager at IBM. It looked like one of the most challenging roles I'd ever seen in my life, not just from a sales perspective, but from a leadership perspective as well. And what you had to deal with to keep people aligned and motivated in uh, some very uh, uncertain spaces where, where there's a lot of change in a company that big pretty constantly. Um, what was it like for you? How did you, how did you get through it in that sort of a uh, dynamic and changing space? Yeah, it was, it, it, you're right, Jason. It was um, a little bit tough at the beginning because they didn't, you know, that the 20, 30 years they've been doing this, it had been treated in a, in a particular way. Um, going at it was spent some time, you know, with upper management showing them how much attrition was really costing them how much not being able to get annual increases was costing them. And um, so I guess really showed the problem first. Um, and it was dramatic. I mean, we're talking about tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars of what I viewed as potential losses, uh, lost opportunities there. Um, with that then, you know, was, was given the, the latitude to take the team and start doing some additional skills training. There really had never been any sales training on this team before. So we did sales mm -hmm. training. We did funnel management. We made visits. We talked to customers throughout the year, not just the one month before their renewals were, were up and all of those things. And the team and, and the team had a, had a struggle too. There were people on the team that had been doing this for many, many years and had been judged to be very successful you know, by the metrics that were in place at the time. We had to change them too, but um, you know, by the end of the first year, like I said, we had tremendous results, and um, you know, everybody on the team, you know, did well. In fact, I mean, I'm, I'm proud to say that every single person on the team made their quota, and that's uh, 
mm. pretty unusual in any type of business that everybody made. That, that is, that is quite an accomplishment. You've probably seen the rags out there. I think the alarm bells in the sales world are going off that for the last seven years, more than 50% of sales reps in the sales world in general are not making their numbers. Mm-hmm. And, and especially in a space like that, you know, highly commoditized um, business of just software renewals where there's not a lot of relationship on the customer, having everybody hit their numbers is is huge. So that's saying a lot. Um, I'll go back to that level of success. What, what made you able to do that? Um, especially when you talk about managing change, you talked about two different directions, you know, uh, negotiating change, um, and getting the autonomy you needed by managing up, but also managing your existing team members. You know, what were some of the things that made you successful in doing that? Well, we we focused, we put together a series of metrics, you know, and we we focused on those every week. Um, we actually, you know, Ooh. the team previously did not have, it was, a, it was a very virtual team scattered all over the country and did not have, um, you know, recurring meetings, you know, instituted a, a team meeting every week where we all got on board. We reviewed where we were against our numbers. Uh, everybody in the team participated. Uh, it was somebody's, uh, you know, uh, job each week to, you know, share something that they learned uh, that they thought might be of advantage to the rest of the team. So we built a real uh, team, uh, a team culture. I mean, as an example, there was somebody that I inherited. Uh, she had been doing this job for five years, working from her home in New York, and had never met any of her peers or her manager in five years. Well, you know, that's, that's kind of a, I don't know how she did it. That's really a tough thing. But I really, really developed a, a teaming culture that was focused on continuous improvement and put up, um, you know, boards on the walls of how we were, how we were going against the numbers, you know, explaining, uh, you know, to the reps, you know, how everything that they did, how it affected the numbers, how it affected the team results, how it affected their own commission payouts, um, hmm. all those pieces and kept everybody focused on what was important. And then my job was as certain things percolated up that were obstacles to our success. You know, I would hear that from the team and then I would, you know, go work with management and try to get those things resolved. And, um, it, you know, it, took, it was, it was a slow, a slow piece. The first few months, there were a lot of people that didn't quite get it but they were all willing to give it a shot. And, you know, by within about three months into the first quarter, uh, people could start seeing that we were starting to make some baby steps and then we're, you know, we're full on. Wow. And that's awesome. And I, I know this from, from you and our time together that the second place team, as you were number one in the, in the globe, wasn't really close. You all were way ahead. Would you attribute most of that success to that team culture, to the way you brought people together inside of your yeah. Your yeah, absolutely. There, there's no way that a manager can, you know, scale you know, his or her talents to, you know, take care of every you know daily thing. You've got to get the team working as a cohesive engine. Um, I'm not a race car guy, but you know, I think the, you know, the pit is probably one of the best examples. I mean, you got you know one, you know, what four different people changing four different tires and somebody else putting, you know, in the gasoline and somebody else cleaning off the windshield and if any one of those people doesn't do their job, well, you know, the car, the racing car doesn't, doesn't get out on time. And, right. um, you know, the same thing in sales, everybody's got to do their job to be successful. Um, you know, and then, and then you start putting some personal pride in there. I mean, I had, I had totem 
you know, uh, reports out there that showed how everybody was doing stacked ranked against each other. Well, you know, nobody wants to be last. Everybody wants to be first, you know, a little bit of friendly competition, um, you know, because, you know, even the person that was in first didn't want the person to be in last. I mean, everybody wanted to elevate the whole team, you know, and, uh, and it worked out. It worked out real well. I mean, everybody was very, very pleased that, like I said, not only was I happy the team all made their numbers, but on the team was really happy that everybody made their numbers. Right. Uh, paid out a lot more Absolutely. than IBM had budgeted. <laughs> that, was, that was the only thing I got in a little bit of trouble for was blowing out the, the bonus. Um, once I ended up telling the people, hey, yeah, you paid out more bonus than you than you had planned on, but you also collected a heck of a lot more money than you planned on, too. You know, and it was a net positive. But initially, I got into a couple of discussions I had with the finance folks and explained that to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I I've been accused once of uh, of blowing the curve. I had a a record quarter, and and uh, then suddenly the compensation plan kind of changed a bit. So yes, yes, I know what that's like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be, be careful with payouts. But um, I'll, I'll ask you this: You went deep on you, you mentioned something that was interesting. I'd like to go deeper on what you just talked about there, and that uh, you had everybody aware of where the rest of the team was standing. You had a little bit of a sense of competition going, but you managed to balance that with a collaborative uh, culture where everyone's trying to help each other get to their number and you could tell who was behind and there wasn't uh, so much of bragging rights. I've heard debates about whether or not that's a positive or a negative thing to put everybody's uh, rank out there or, or only show the top five or only show your top 10, but don't show the people at the bottom. But uh, you had everybody on a team of 25 plus with uh, their numbers out there for everyone to see. And that was a, a positive thing for your team. Yeah, correct? it definitely was. And th yeah, there were some people that were, you know, that were that were lower on the totem and tried to explain why that was because their job was harder, their products were harder, they had tougher customers, whatever. Storytelling. Storytelling, you know, excuse making. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we, we worked through those things, um, you know, and, 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 and made it better. And, you know, for those people that had the challenges, I, I spent some extra time with them on, you know, let's, you know, let's work on that tougher customer. Why are they a tougher customer? What is they're asking for? Um, you know, and, and we're able to be successful. Um, you know, so yeah, it, it, having everybody stack rank like that publicly, you know, um, is tough, but, you know, I mean, let's be perfectly honest. Um, you know, the guys at the bottom, you know, they, uh, probably already knew there at the bottom, the people on the rest of the team probably already knew it. And in some cases, you know, um, there were some people that eventually needed to be, um, you know, moved out as obviously our expectations increased dramatically in year two. There were some that just couldn't quite keep up. And, you know, I helped them find other jobs within IBM where they were better suited. Good on you for that. Um, I know a lot of other managers, you probably have some stories about bad sales managers, but a lot of others aren't uh as good about taking care of their people after they've given them good service but um you didn't just go the step of making sure everyone was aware of all of the performance stats on the team you actually took that extra step of incorporating that team meeting getting everyone together to discuss those numbers in person and i guess in those meetings you also did some things to to help foster again that balance between competition and collaboration uh, can we go deep on the, the meeting there and how you how you actually ran those meetings to get that balance that we we talked about being so important? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a 
a firm agenda that we followed on every one of the meetings. Um, it started off with wins in the past week. So every rep went down their um, major wins that they had over the previous week. So always, always need to be celebrating, you know, the good things. Um, you know, then from there, we reviewed the numbers where we stood uh, as a team and where we stood individually. So I went through that with everybody. Um, we then had, and I'm working from memory here a little bit, I think at that point, then we had some sort of education. So somebody on the team or an invited guest came in and, you know, gave us some education on something, whether it was, it might be selling skills, it might be product feature, you know, uh, education, did those sorts of things. Um, then we, uh, went around different things that people had learned that they wanted to share with the rest of the team. That was very, very critical. Um, and then any help that was needed that we then had assigned to people with dates that it was going to get done by that we always reviewed the next by the next meeting. So, um, you know, everything that we did during these meetings was captured everything from the wins, the education, the next steps. Um, I had that uh, published uh, back to the team before the day was over. And, and then we, that was one of the things that we kind of kicked off before the next meeting, you know, all right, Bruce, you said you're going to get this done for me. Did, did you get it done? You know, and if not, well, then I, you know, shame on me and I had to, had to get it done, but try to find ways to keep things from slipping through the cracks so that, so that the, the meetings weren't just once a week events. They were, you know, one piece of the continuous you know, improvement process. I like that. A piece of the process. It's a step in the process. And I also like the fact that you you had the education coming from the people on the team. You know, there's responsibility and accountability where people had to conduct or present training for their peers. And you also had a, a sense of accountability that if you said you're going to do something in public around everybody else in the meeting, you know that next meeting we're going to ask about that. That sounds Leadership 101, stuff that we did in the military all the time. Very important. That was, that was good. Good, good, good. Did, was there any pushback on that kind of accountability? Were, were people a little bit hesitant to take that kind of agency for training their peers and, uh, you know, making commitments out in public like that? Or did people tend to embrace that and like that yeah. kind of culture of ownership? No, that, that actually went pretty well, pretty easily uh, when, when everybody saw that everybody was going to have equal accountability. Um, you know, and, and they were the ones that had, a you know, I mean, I never went out and said, you know, um, Jason, you need to have this done by tomorrow. You know, I might say, Jason, can you get this done by tomorrow? But then you would then come back and say, no, I, I can't get it done till next Monday. All right. Anything I can do to, have to get it done quicker? And if not, all right, this next Monday. So there were always, you know, dates and tasks that were agreed upon by the responsible party, not just forced on them. Yeah. Right. That's fantastic. I, you're mirroring some of the things that we teach here at Aslan about um, the coaching process and making sure that people actually commit to those next steps. It's one thing to be assigned a task and maybe resent it, but it's another thing to publicly decide that this is the next step I'm going to take. And now you have to follow through. That's powerful. Uh, I love that your meetings are not just tools for you, the manager, to waste your team's time to get caught up. And uh, you've probably got stories of bad managers in the past that would bring people in, sit them down and say, OK, here's the deals that I got. I got to go tell the story up to management about these deals. So, John, go tell me about, you know, Arthurplex.com, you know, and you have to listen to 12 people ahead of you tell a story about deals just so your manager got the story straight. 
they finish and he go repeat the stories back to upper management. You actually had it as an education point, a rallying point, and a synergy point for your whole team. That, that sounds a lot better. Have you been on some teams that did that sort of, um, you know, uh, manager checkup meeting instead? Yeah. Was, was that some of your – In that case, I always call those fire drills. You know, it's like, all right, we got to get, get together drill. because, you know, my manager needs something. And what we tried to do was to keep our, our information up to date, um, you know, in, in most a lot of cases within, you know, the IBM CRM. And if we kept our information up to date, all we had to do then was somebody needed information. They could pull it themselves or I could pull a report for them. But I didn't have to go ahead and do those do those fire drills for them. Um, the team eventually, um, you know, appreciated that if they do their, you know, their, their a minute here and a minute there every day to stay current, they didn't have these emergencies that popped up all the time. So they actually um, enjoyed, um, you know, knowing what was expected of them so they could get their job done. You know, more efficiently. Nobody likes those emergencies that you know that pop up and drop what you're doing, and you got to get this done for me. It's of no benefit to you. It's only a benefit to management. That's the worst. Right. It, you know, it seems like you need buy-in from operations and from senior sales leadership to fund the kind of tools to make that possible. You and I both know that we were there at a time when those tools were not available. And we went through this long process, you know, naming no names on tools and such, where everybody was going to this one tool that couldn't deliver. And we were back to Excel, back to spreadsheets to kind of tell the stories and, and get the information up. How important was it to get the seller's perspective on what was needed transmitted up through the ranks so that the right tools got in place? Yeah. So that you can. Yeah, that's always the hard one. Uh, I mean, it was, it's fairly easy to, to gather the information of what you know the sellers think that they need. You know, now, you know, getting a consensus across other groups that may or may not have, you know, similar desires and then, you know, getting somebody else to agree that that's a challenge that is worth the investment of time and money to, you know, to, to create a new tool or, or new process or whatever. Um, you know, that, that, that was always the hard part. And, you know, one of the things I always worked with the team on was, you know, all we can do is, you know, raise our our, um, our challenges, make our recommendations. You know, we didn't, didn't just throw problems, you know, over the transom and hope somebody else would fix it. We had to actually, you know, this is what we would suggest would be a good resolution to this and, um, you know, do our best. And that was then my job to do my best to try to find other people to, you know, have solutions for us. Um, IBM was a, you know, a reasonably, um, you know, smart enough company that when we came up with ideas that had, you know, not, terribly burdensome solutions. They were pretty good at allowing us to change processes, get new tools, you know, within reasonable costs and those things to, to make it done. And obviously they, they held our hand to make sure we got the return on the investment from it, but they were pretty decent. That's good. And I imagine that whole meeting that you ran had to be hugely efficient, you know, especially in this you know, distributed workforce where you had people in different countries to get everybody together at one time to gather all the information you needed to make those arguments up the chain. Absolutely. It was probably a lot easier than making a hundred phone calls mm -hmm. to everybody in your team. Yep, yep, yep. I don't know if you've um, read anything from the McChrystal group, but um, General Stanley McChrystal ran special forces operations in um, in the Iraqi war theater in this longest decade of combat we've had. And um, 
we wrote a book, Team of Teams, and uh, his his second in command, uh, Chris Fussell, wrote a book after that um, called One Mission, where he talked about um, having a routine checkpoint meeting every day, every week, whatever your battle rhythm is on your organization to get everybody on board as to what the mission is going to be, get everyone aligned around how to move forward. And that meeting was the focal point of it, the successful in the theater of battle. And now they're teaching it as an organization to corporations, right? Um, what about that aligning mission part that we talked about? Um, you know, getting everybody on the same pages. This is our message. This is what we're going after this month. Were those things kind of critical to to making sure that uh, you hit your numbers? Like, hey, we're going to get our numbers from this product set first. Let's get after it as a team. Did you, do you ever do that? Yeah, we did. And I think the the key part where it came into into focus within IBM was, you know, even though what we were chartered with was getting the renewals and getting people that had canceled their maintenance to to come back on, we still had to work with you know, the field team was actually out trying to sell other things. So making sure that, you know, we understood their mission, they understood our mission, how can we best work together, nothing, you know, no, no chasms between what we're doing, you know, minimize the overlap and things was probably the biggest piece. And, um, and that was actually one area that, um, you know, we ended up having to work with upper management to ensure that, you know, if, if we got, for example, a, a company to reinstate their maintenance, that the, that the field rep would actually still get paid something on it. Originally, he was not. He or she was not. So the field rep actually wanted to sell new software and didn't want to reinstate old software. Well, from a customer point of view, buying new software costs a lot more money. But but from a rep mm-hmm. standpoint, well, I don't care if it's cheaper. I don't make any commission on it. So I'd ra- you know I'd almost rather sell nothing because maybe I'll sell more software next year. So you know one of the things we did was, was matching our missions together and got to the point where the renewals business and the new license business came together at the general manager level and uh, changed the comp plan to make sure that our missions and our compensations matched, you know, across both teams. Well, that's interesting. At the general manager level, so you mean on the operations side of the coin, outside of the sales team, that's where that that insight came together and it trickled down to the frontline sales team. Is that right? Wow. So that's funny that a lot of times people see these gaps in sales team performance and they tend to point straight to the sales team sales team fix it but it seems like there's tons of overlap with the other silos that uh, are usually in in a cold war with each other sales marketing operations uh it looks like you needed that oversight that that assistance from operations to kind of resolve those internal issues yep exactly that's what you have to do and and um you know back again at the from what we said at the very beginning if the you know, if the general manager saw that there was um, a root cause of a problem that was causing, you know, not, you know, not the optimum amount of sales to go through, here's the root cause, you know, here's a solution, you know, is the solution investment worth, you know, the amount of money we're going to put into it, the investment here was maybe paying out higher commissions, you know, uh, or commissions in Mm -hmm. a different way. But if it brings in more money, you know, it's still positive cash flow. Amen. Amen. You know, you and I both had a lot of other roles since IBM. We're focusing on that because we had that shared experience together. We keep coming back to it. But I've worked for, you know, another four or five other companies since then, uh, consulted with hundreds of other companies since then, and you and your different roles, uh, and also in your work with ESMA, what you 
uh, tell the crowd a little bit about uh, ESMA and what you're doing with them. You've probably experienced a lot of other different sales teams through these other organizations and other roles. In that, in that uh, perspective, do you feel like this kind of collaboration is on the downside? Is it, is it dying or dead or tapering off to where fewer and fewer companies are, are getting the kind of centers that they want in these kind of distributed digital workforce environments? Yeah, you've got um, two questions there. I'll, I'll answer the first one first, then I'll get to the second piece. But uh, ESMA, the Executive Sales and Marketing Association, is a is a group I founded about ten years ago. We meet um, once a once a month and bring together sales and marketing people. Our our mission is to um, you know improve the the skills of Georgia's sales and marketing professionals through education and networking, and um, it's been it's been wonderful for me. I've met so many tremendous people. I've learned so much from the experts that we've had coming in as speakers. It's just been a tremendous way for me to continue to hone my skills. To the second part of your question, um, things have changed a lot in the last ten years. Um, ten years ago, you know, CRMs weren't a, a staple that they are now. I mean, a lot of companies had them, but not all of them did. Uh, digital marketing wasn't where it is now. Um, Virtual workforces, you know, weren't as prevalent as they are now. So there's a lot of things that are different now than they were 10 years ago, certainly 40 years ago when I started my career, but even 10 years ago since Executive Sales and Marketing Association started. And um, I've learned a lot from people that have gone through the same struggles that I'm going through. That are, you know, sharing their, you know, you know, trials and tribulations to to make all of us better. And um, I think the I think the the virtual workforce, the digitization of everything that we're doing, um, probably more than anything that just with, you know, with with the, the, the Internet and everything that goes with it, you know, that the access to information that our customers have is, you know, so much more than it was you know back in my day back, you know, back when I started 40 years ago, the only way that somebody could learn about a new product was, you know, for a sales guy to go or to go to a trade show. Heck, now you just Google it and <laughs> there it is. Yeah. And that, that same kind of uh, ubiquity of information is kind of pushing people in the sales team apart, it seems. I feel like there's less collaboration now internally than there used to be. Um, there certainly can be. I mean, people kind of get lost in their CRMs and lost in their own little worlds and sitting behind their desk, you know, Googling things and stuff and it makes it harder to collaborate. So you have to really make an active uh, part of your job to, you know, get out of your chair and go meet with other people, collaborate with your teammates. And that's something that you know, not only the individual contributor has to do, but, you know, management has to foster that also. I really feel like the management has to be involved in that. And uh, again, the reason for asking you on today is that I've seen you do that in, in your time and your work that I could observe that you did make sure you, you reached across the aisle and you, you got to know people outside of your team. Like I never worked for you, not once, but we knew each other. So that kind of collaboration on the role of the sales leader is just essential. And uh, I'm glad you were able to model that for us to kind of get something out of it today. Um, Bruce, I want to make sure that everyone's able to connect with you uh, in the way that you want to, to help and, and reach out and, and however you'd like to do that. If you want to just share with everyone how they could reach out to you for the kind of help you're willing to offer, 
um, we'll, we'll wrap up with some information about you. And, uh, sure, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm very much that. an open networker. My LinkedIn includes both my email address, which is bkopkin at gmail.com. Very simple one. And my cell phone number is 770-330-9867. If you want to talk to me about anything about business, you'd like to find ways of uh, getting involved with the Executive Sales and Marketing Association or anything else, uh, just please uh, contact me. I thank you for that opportunity, Jason. Fantastic. Is there a website we can go to for the ESMA yeah, website? Yeah, um, of course, www.esma-atlanta.org. If anybody can make it, it's a, it would be a tremendous, tremendous uh, time investment for you. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. Pleasure as ever. Can't wait to see you again. Hopefully, I can make it to one of those meetings. And uh, we will be in touch again. Opportunity, Jason. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye.